Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. About seven years ago, when this show was actually on, on a different platform, I interviewed the best-selling writer George Packer about his 2013 book, The Unwinding, An Inner History of the New America. It was like a kind of health check, a, a, a brilliant health check on, 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 on the state of America. And what Dr. Packer found in 2013 in America were things weren't quite right. There was deregulation, outsourcing, inequality, still a country with a great deal of vitality and promise, but at the same time, uh, things weren't quite right. Well, seven years later, Dr. Packer is back at examining America. And this time, the pathology is awful. It's dark, uncompromisingly bleak. I'm going to quote George Packer's latest piece from The Atlantic. It's the cover story of the June 2020 issue. It's entitled, We Are Living in a Failed State. And of course, it's about the virus and the impact of the virus on America. I'm quoting these first couple of sentences. I don't think I've ever read anything so bleak or angry. He says, or he writes, when the virus came here, it found a country with serious underlying conditions and it exploited them ruthlessly. Chronic ills, a corrupt political class, a sclerotic bureaucracy, a heartless economy, a divided and distracted public, had gone untreated for years. George Packer, you're pretty angry, aren't you? I am. Uh, I'm expressing it a little more than I usually do. I mean, the unwinding is narrative. It's all told through the stories of the people I spent time with and reported on. And so if there's any anger there, it's theirs. I'm invisible and um, unmentioned in that book. But this is an essay, and it's a direct shot from my gut to yours um, at, a, at a moment in time when there's a lot to be angry about because tens of thousands of people in this country are dead, and tens of thousands are going to die. And I don't think it had to be this way. Yeah, I'm angry. So, uh, it's it's lovely to talk to you again, George. We haven't spoken for seven years. What's That's happened right. in that seven years is, um, I mean, we can't blame everything on Trump, can we? Not everything. There's a lot of blame to go around, but it has to start with him. And I put a lot of uh, my fire on him in this short essay. But I see Trump as being one of those symptoms that I talk about in that opening paragraph that you read. Um, I did not see him coming, but I think the unwinding portrayed a landscape in which he was more than thinkable, in which you could imagine uh, a figure as unqualified and divisive as he becoming the president. 
And it turns out that when you put a man like that at the top of a government during a time that is as polarized and troubled as these past few years have been, he could do a lot of damage pretty quickly. Um, but the other problems are well known. That's the thing about it, Andrew. All of this is well known. We have a relentless economic inequality that nothing seems to change. We have partisanship that reminds some people of the 1850s and the years just before the Civil War. Um, we have a, a, a global posture that has us essentially looking to our friends and saying, what's in it for us? Why should we cooperate with you? Looking to dictators and saying, oh, you guys seem to have an answer. Maybe we should be more like you. All the things that I grew up thinking made us a great country, we're systematically <laughs> discarding, trashing, or just allowing to kind of decay. And so Trump is part of that. He's done a lot of damage, but he is the fact that there is a President Trump is already a sign that the, the patient had serious conditions and the, the virus is just bringing everything out that we already knew. In your Atlantic piece, um, you compare Trump with Pétain in France. and <laughs> You don't use the F word, but of course, uh, fascism and the impact of fascism on interwar Europe comes to mind. And of course, Camus' famous book about uh, that, the plague. Um, to, to what extent is the coronavirus plague and uh, the plague that now is inflicting America, the, the socioeconomic, cultural, and political plague, to what extent have they kind of come together? Well, I mean, the, the virus is a biological fact, and every human being is vulnerable to it. And other countries are suffering even more than we are. Although the remarkable thing is ever since mid-March, we have had a third of the world's cases, known cases, and a quarter of the world's deaths, which per capita is way out of proportion to what we should have. But it's not as though this is an American disease. It seems to be inflicting a lot of damage here because we, first of all, squandered those two months, those crucial two months between January and March. And second, because we were so unready to, to mount a collective response. And that seems to be the only way you can do it is collectively. You cannot have the mayor of this town staying open while the mayor of that town closes down. I mean, South Korea now is <laughs> the world's greatest country. They're paving the way and showing how you do it. Whereas we have been chaotic, um, quarrelsome, helpless. We have supply chains that don't exist. We have amateurs running key government offices, including the president's son-in-law. Um, and, and then we're, we're also seeing all the institutions that have really begun to collapse prisons, nursing homes, meat packing plants, um, hospitals, if not collapse, at least we're just waiting for trouble because we, and, oh, and I should add unemployment offices, 
And when the stress got to be this great, they all began to, to give way because we have not invested in them. We have not regulated them. We have not made sure that they are capable of um, surviving and of the, the people who need to depend on them are capable of surviving when things really get bad. So that's a long answer to your, to your question. Uh, a short answer might be that you, you compare the United States to Pakistan or, or, or Belarus in, in contrast, obviously, with South Korea or Germany. Do you think there is a, any coincidence to the fact that the two most advanced industrial countries to, to do badly um, out of the plague in terms of death are the United States and the United Kingdom? who are both the most sort of prominent neoliberal states, neoliberal states with marked uh, inequality and seemingly an indifference to the plight and experience of the underclass. Because after all, as you just noted, the people now who are most uh, tragically afflicted with this virus are the people on the front line. It's not just doctors, it's drivers, it's, um, it's, it's, it's the precariat. It's people who are having to work. I think in a, in a, in a recent uh, survey uh, in San Francisco, 90% of the people who are positive, uh, who have been positive for the virus, are still working, whereas the, the upper classes are sitting at home. Yeah, that's a great to account, Andrew. I mean, maybe the definition of working class is you have to show up at your job. Um, and so the working class are at risk. The working class are essential warehouse workers, delivery drivers, grocery clerks, truck drivers, uh, nursing home attendants. They have to show up to work. They are essential and they're disposable because their <clears throat> employers and the U.S. government so often treat them as if <clears throat> They could, we could do without them. We could replace them easily so we don't have paid sick leave. We don't allow them to stay home when they're sick. We uh, don't have unemployment insurance that can cover them if they lose their job. So I think you're right about the UK and the US. We, <clears throat> here in the US, more than in the UK, I think, we have an ideology of freedom, which goes back to our origins uh, and which is really powerful. Um, but it has, kind of been turned into a, a caricature of freedom. Freedom is the freedom now to go into the state house of your state with an automatic weapon and demand to be allowed to uh, end the shutdown. That's, and that, that's not freedom. That's actually a form of terrorism. It's a, the threat of violence. But the freedom to to bring a gun into a state house or the freedom to bring the virus to as many people as possible by social mixing. Um, th this is an ideology that, that is suspicious of, of government and of any government intervention. So when you, you know, when you wonder, well, why is it that so many Americans have such poor medical care and it's costing them their health and their lives right now, because so many Americans don't want the government to be involved. And it's a huge battle that's been going on from the beginning of this country. And right now, the, the freedom side, which is the conservative side, uh, is ideologically 
um, on the warpath, but has also kind of become a nihilistic caricature of itself. And it, and the countries that seem to be doing okay are countries where there may not be a love of government, but there's at least an understanding that government has to be strong and healthy and viable enough to to step in when and to be trusted with providing solutions when something like this happens. And that's what you see in South Korea, Germany, um, and some of the Scandinavian countries. Whereas Belarus, which I compared us to in that piece, <laughs> turns out our per capita testing rate is right around that of Belarus, which is a country that's practically had a denialist policy toward the virus. So that's how far we've sunk, thanks to our mistrust of of government and of expertise. George, has the country unwound, or how do we put it back together again? Uh, your 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 analysis is, I think, right, but also deeply depressing. Can it be fixed, or is this patient pretty much dead? I mean, that's a question I'm asking myself a lot these days. I, I cannot pronounce my own country dead because, first of all, it's my country. I live here. I love it. My children are growing up here. I want them to have a future here, a good future. And second, because I, I know this country well enough to know that it's capable of shocking the world. It's right now it's shocking the world <laughs> in a collapse like France 1940. But I think it's capable of, we have enormous talents and energies and resources. And some of them are working right now in amazing ways, just in fragments, separately. Everyone doing it on their own. The voluntarism during the plague has been really heartening. Um, the work of, of scientists trying to develop the vaccine, the work of citizens trying to step in where the government has failed, all of that is America at its best. It's still there. Um, and I no, I can't give up on this country. And I, But I think we need to take a really hard look at ourselves. This, this plague has been in some ways useful in showing the truth. And if we don't learn from that, then it will be a completely unredeemed tragedy. The only way to redeem the awful tragedy of these deaths is by renewing what's good in this country and rebuilding it until we are capable of being what I feel we're capable of being. But it's not just reg regime change, is it, uh, George? I mean... I think everybody listening, or the vast majority of people listening to this, will, 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 will vote if they can vote. Will vote for Biden over Trump. But doesn't it require something more substantial—a rethinking of um, ideology about government, about the state, about civic responsibility, about the very nature of America, which has somehow gone so profoundly wrong? I absolutely agree with you. This is nothing that one election can fix. I think one election is necessary without getting rid of this administration. I don't think there's much of anything 
that we can do. In fact, I think four more years could be a, a kind of fatal prognosis, but but changing administrations is is not going to get us off this track because it's we've gone so far down it and through administrations of both parties for some years now. The good thing is I have a feeling a lot of people are asking these questions right now and are thinking this way in the way that you might ask yourself hard questions about your own life if you suddenly have a, a really bad health scare or mm. a near tragedy occurs to you and you suddenly wonder if you're living your life in the right way. Um, I have a feeling that this pause that's forcing us to all think a little harder and a little longer than we normally do in our frenetic lives, I think it's bound to have that effect on people. And I think there's enough thoughtful and civic-minded people in this country that, that will see some, some good things, some good ideas coming from it. Where would you like to see those ideas originate? Might it be around a, a kind of a, a revaluation of labor? Um, or might it be about rethinking technology in Silicon Valley? Uh, you, I know you grew up in Northern California, and in your last book, The Unwinding, was in part at least about the promise of technology. Where do we begin? Well, I did grow up in what was called the Santa Clara Valley. It, it became Silicon Valley around the time I graduated from high school and um, has changed enormously since I grew up there. I've always been a skeptic of the utopian promises of Silicon Valley. And I think my skepticism has been pretty amply borne out in the last few years, um, especially with the rise of social media. Um, I don't expect, I don't expect uh, the next Facebook to save us. Um, <laughs> if anything, the next Facebook may be the final thing that kills us. Um, I do think that labor is a good place to start because partly th because of technology, workers have disappeared and we almost have forgotten that there are workers Instead, everyone is a brain wired to a computer. And by the magic of, of uh, mobile and other technology, your food suddenly appears uh, or your, your package appears. And what the plague is showing us is all the people along the way who are necessary to get it to you, who have been so devalued. It's as if they have no identity at all. You know, the idea of a, a labor movement that has a kind of heroic quality, which was the labor movement of the, the 30s and the 40s, is gone. We don't have much of a labor movement at all, but we still have workers. And I think a good place to start is to understand that they are essential to our economy and that to allow them to be on the front lines and to go down without uh, protection has a real cost economically, politically, and morally. So that, that's a place that I'd like to see some real thinking about reforms. Um, and I'm not smart enough to come up with those ideas myself, but I know that there are people who, who can do that. Um, and another is simply in, in civic activism and in being citizens, <clears throat> 
where one of the most moving and enraging moments of the pandemic for me was uh, in early March when voters in Wisconsin were forced, was it early March or late March? Now it's all conflating. I can't Mm. remember the date. When voters in Wisconsin were forced to line up uh, in masks to vote in person because the Supreme Court ruled that the election couldn't be postponed and absentee ballots had to be postponed. That was late March. Yeah, late March. Um, There was something heroic about those pictures. There was something profoundly disquieting about a system that forced you to choose between the franchise and your health. Um, And it kind of brought into focus the whole nexus of issues around the ability to vote, who gets to vote, how you vote, and how your vote counts. Because I think more and more people are beginning to feel that their vote doesn't count and that majority rule is really threatened today. There's a lot of policy changes around just the, the mechanism of elections and of politics that I hope will come out of this too. Finally, George, uh, where'd you get your ideas? Give me a couple of books that you've been reading that you might suggest to, to listeners who, are, who, like you, are stuck at home with nothing better to do, which is a good thing, I guess, than read a couple of interesting, provocative, thoughtful books. Yeah, that, that's going to be the thing that I miss when this is over. Being with my family and being with books, um, having time for that, uh, time all the time in the world for that. So I've been reading the speeches of Lincoln, and they are amazing literature. He was such a damn good writer. They were all pretty good writers back then. The level of literacy was astounding. But they're also utterly relevant because... The 1850s was a time of dissolution. We were headed toward a a cataclysm that I hope and and think we will not fall into today. But the divisions and, and vitriol were similar. And Lincoln rose above it and saw the issues so clearly and drew on American history, always going back to 1776, and to the promise of self-government for his guiding North Star. It's pretty inspiring stuff. And it tells you that what, what, if we think this is bad, we don't know what bad is. Um, so I'd say look back to Lincoln and see what he has to tell us about where we are today. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.